During our time in Isaiah, we have read a lot of judgment because the people of Israel have insisted on going their own way instead of following the Lord. We have heard time and again how God will judge both the nations and his own people. God's people won't be exempt because they are the chosen nation. They should have known better. God has proven time and time again to be faithful and worthy of their honor, praise, and trust. Yet time and time again, Israel and Judah have gone their own way, followed their own desires, and turned to the idols of the nations that surrounded them. The story of scripture is the story of God's faithfulness in the face of God's people's unfaithfulness. And Isaiah 30 is just one example. So let's turn to Isaiah 30, starting in verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you refused and said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift on the top of a mountain. That's, we're missing something. <laughs> your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee until you are left like a flagstaff on the top of the mountain, like a signal on a hill. There's that. <laughs> Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Yep, that's where we are. Okay. Therefore, the Lord <laughs> waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. O people in Zion, inhabitants of Jerusalem, you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Though the Lord may give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself any longer, but your eyes shall see your teacher. And when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Then you will defile your silver-covered idols and your gold-plated images. You will scatter them like impure things. You will say to them, away with you. He will give rain for the seed which you sow in the ground, and grain, the produce of the ground, will be rich and plenteous. On that day, your cattle will graze in broad pastures, and the oxen and donkeys that, till the, that fill the ground will eat silage that has been winnowed with shovel and fork. On every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water on a day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be like the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold, like the light of seven days, on the day when the Lord binds up the injuries of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow." Let us pray. Lord, 
we come to this passage perhaps a little tired of judgment. But Lord, here you provide us both the judgment that leads to repentance and the blessing that we receive when we turn to seek your face. This morning, may we learn from both your judgment and your blessing that we might seek you more closely. Amen. We're going a little bit into last week's passage because verse 18, where we were going to start, is actually the end of the section, verses 15 through 18. And like I prayed, there is judgment here too, as there was judgment in the earlier part of the chapter and in so much of the book so far. But this passage does not end in judgment. This passage ends with the gracious and faithful God who has been consistent through all of history. First, in the Exodus, God passed before Moses and proclaimed to God's self, the Lord, proclaimed of God's self, not to himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This proclamation is repeated throughout the scriptures. Nehemiah repeats it when the people return after the exile. But they, our ancestors, act acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and you did not forsake them. It is repeated through the Psalms. You see three there. They'll come back later for you to read. And again in Joel, when he tells the people to return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from punishment. This is who God is. So we will begin with the judgment for the sins of the people, but we will end with the grace and mercy bestowed on them when they turned to the Lord. In verse 15, faced with the growing power and presence of surrounding kings, the people are to trust in God and remain where they are. This command is a difficult one. Let's pause and imagine for a moment a massive army gathering in Los Angeles. They're not here in Santa Barbara, but you know that they're coming. You know that this is where they are heading and they want to conquer Santa Barbara. So what would you do? It makes sense to flee, right? You leave before that army comes and you find a safe place somewhere else. But what if God has said that your salvation is found in returning or resting here, in the very place that the army is supposed to be coming? Would you stay? Would you come back if you had started to leave? Israel's fear and desire to run makes more sense, right? Trusting God is not always easy. Sometimes it seems to place us in danger. Sometimes it contradicts everything that we think we know about the world. In Israel's case, they are to remain in Zion, and God promises they will be saved. 
Instead, they flee on their horses and in their flight are overtaken by the invading army until they're isolated and alone. Isaiah says that they will stand alone like a flagpole or a signal on a hilltop. There'll be nobody around them. Had they stayed, they would have been safe. For Zion actually remained standing when the areas around them fell. Israel suffered the consequences of their disobedience and then ends up crying out to God. This is the pattern of Israel's life. In the wilderness, Israel complained that God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt into that wilderness, so God sent serpents among them. When they cried out, God provided deliverance. The same was true during the period of the judges. God would speak to the people. They would be all right for a little while. Then they would go their own way, face the consequences, and then cry out to God. And God would over and over and over raise up a judge who would, bring, who would speak the word of the Lord back to them and bring them back to God. How many of the prophets have had to call Israel back from their disobedience to complete trust in God? Without Israel's disobedience, we probably wouldn't have the prophets. Every time Israel's trust in God failed, every time Israel disobeyed, they were disciplined by the God who had called and instructed them. Yet God still responded with grace and mercy when they turned back and cried to God. This time is no different. God continues to be who God has always been. When the people cry out to God, he hears their cries and answers them. Isaiah offers assurance. God is just waiting to be gracious to Israel, even in Israel's disobedience, even in ours. God is waiting for us to cry out to him. He is waiting with grace and mercy. God's gracious response is laid out in the second part of the passage, and it has eight different elements. It is striking that the blessing, even after the disobedience, is so all-encompassing. First, Israel's weeping will cease. Now Israel is weeping as a consequence of their own actions. By disobeying God and trying to flee, they have created great sorrow for themselves. But God promises that when Israel stops running and cries out to God instead, God will be present, and their weeping will cease. They will experience the merciful and gracious God instead of the judgment they had been experiencing. The same is true for us. The second element of the promise is that Israel's teachers will not be hidden from them anymore. We don't know exactly who the teacher is or the teachers are, is the teacher God, who will no longer be hidden from Israel because they have turned back to their Lord? Or perhaps the teachers are the prophets and teachers who have had to go into hiding because Israel has not wanted to hear their message. Remember last week when Israel told the prophets and teachers to tell them smooth things instead of what is right? Multiple times in Israel's history, the prophets and teachers of the, law, of the Lord have had to flee from those who did not want to hear what God had to say. Now, God promises that their teachers, whether God himself or those prophets and teachers that God has appointed to speak on his behalf, will be seen by the people. They will know what God has said. They will be able to hear, trust, and obey. 
Along with the teachers, God promises that the people will know which way they should be going. As they proceed through their lives, as they turn to the right or turn to the left, they will hear a voice beside them saying, this is the way, walk in it. This is an interesting promise because the people should have known which way to go anyway. They had prophets, priests, teachers, and the Torah to guide them. Yet they didn't listen very often. Now, though, God promises that they will know which way to go. They will hear that voice guiding them. That promise seems to mean that they will be able to follow. Perhaps the most significant element of the promise is that Israel will get rid of their idols. Again, they will be able to follow. Idolatry has been a sin that they have struggled with since the wilderness. It has been far too, is, too easy for Israel to turn away from the God who saved them from the idols of their neighbors who had no power. The idols have surrounded them and been their downfall over and over. But now there will be a change. The people will not just turn away from their idols. They will actually destroy them. They will cast them away as though they were unclean things. Even though these idols have monetary value in their raw materials, the silver and gold have value if they were to be melted down and used for something else, the people will not keep even the elements of which the idols were created. They will remove them completely from their midst. They will be treated as unclean objects which will be completely removed from the people of Israel and from their presence. This is a huge step for the people who seemed to struggle to get rid of their idols through so much of their history. But judgment and captivity have transformed them in ways that they seemed unable to accept before. The promise is that they will be different, more faithful, more trusting. God's discipline has shaped them in new ways. At the end of the promise, we find an abundant land in multiple ways. The fields will be abundant. There will be grain for the people and grain for the animals in such abundance that the animals will eat winnowed grain. Instead of providing the animals grain that is mixed with the shaft that makes it last longer, the good grain will be so plentiful that oxen and donkeys will eat winnowed grain. The water will be so abundant that there will be streams on the tops of the mountains not just water that has made its way down the mountain through the valleys and the different gulches, but actually water on the tops of the mountains. There will also be light in abundance. It will be a, the light that we see in the Messianic age in so many of the passages of scripture, including the one on the front of the bulletin that the moon's brightness actually will become that of the sun, meaning night will cease to exist in some way, that the light of day will become like seven, seven days, like, or perhaps like seven suns, be so bright we can't imagine it in the day of the Messiah. We will see a world where everything and everyone will have everything that is needed. God's people will have their connection with God. Now, what's interesting is that Isaiah seems to have mixed here the promise of God for today for Israel 
and the promise of God for the future for Israel and the Messiah. There does become a period of abundance for the Israelites, and yet we still wait for abundance in light and abundance in fullness across the world that Isaiah has described. The passage ends with the statement that all of the above will occur on that day when God binds up the injuries and wounds of the people. They have been broken in some ways, both physically, spiritually, emotionally. While that brokenness is a direct consequence of their refusal to listen to and obey the God who saved them, God refuses to leave them in that brokenness when they return. God promises to bring healing to his people. They will experience the compassion of the Father who will restore them to all the best that they were before and even more. This is the story of Israel. It is also our story. How many times have we known what God commanded and chosen to walk our own way instead? We may have seen the consequences of our own decisions and thought that in God's anger, we could never be accepted with what we have done. Or we perhaps were stuck in our own stubbornness. So often the thought internally, I was wrong. I know I was wrong, but I don't want to admit that I was wrong. Everyone would know, God would know. But God already knows. And God is waiting to be compassionate and gracious towards us, just as God was waiting to be gracious and compassionate to Israel. Read the story of the Old Testament. They committed more sins in their history as a people than we could ever commit in one lifetime. Yet God is who God has always been, ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and God does not forsake us. As we end our time this morning, consider your life, where repentance is needed, where you need to turn to the open arms of God who is waiting to be compassionate to you and to bestow upon you the blessings of his kingdom. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.